following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, please go to Psalm 78 in your Bible. Psalm 78, like Josh said, it's a long psalm. And um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't read, we didn't read it in its entirety. So I want to get to that quickly. And then, um, and then sort of briskly work our, our way through the psalm together. So Psalm 78. A maskal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but to tell, the, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a new law in Israel, which He commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them a drink abundantly. As from the deep, he made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp and all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward them, him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they had rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power 
or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He, returned, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to destroying locusts and their fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He set loose on them the burning, his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. And then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. And he drove out the nations before them, and he appointed them for a possession and settled them, the tribes of Israel, in their tents. And yet, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and they did not keep His testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, He was full of wrath. He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook His dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob and his people. Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that as we study now this psalm, our own hearts would see clearly in it as if it was a mirror, our own wanderings, our own failures, our own rejection and rebellion but our own grace that we have received at the hand of Christ. Lord, may we see clearly that you are a good God who does not for, forsake your people, but disciplines us that we might remember your goodness and your character and your promises. True for us in Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you might have heard the phrase, usually attributed to Winston Churchill, that those who fail to learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. I think that's generally true. That's the idea that you need to learn from your mistakes or you'll continue to make them. If you go blindly through life, not looking at what has gone before you, learning the lessons from others, hearing the warnings, of others who are trying to keep you from making mistakes or falling into sin, you are almost inevitably doomed to do those very things. But perhaps you're more of a Mark Twain fan, and you say with him that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so we may not have the exact situations, say, that Israel had. We may not fall into the same temptations that they once did. That our society and our culture and our nations and others around the world, they may all experience very different kinds of troubles and mistakes and sins. But there is a sort of pattern among the world. And it is generally true that we must turn not to one another only in our circumstances, but to those who have walked faithfully before us if we are to walk faithfully together in front of us. 
This is true when especially you become a parent and your life all of a sudden is now just one long lesson about what to do and what not to do. Your whole world now becomes preparing your children for the life that you're living. It's probably, honestly, too late for our generation to fully correct the mistakes that the previous generation have made. The best we can do is acknowledge them and warn our own children to avoid those mistakes. And they likewise will have to warn and teach their own children the mistakes that they've made. This is the way the world works because everyone in the world is sinful and we will continue and continue to sin. But children will often draw out opportunities for this lesson, won't they? They'll ask how a certain thing has come to be. Why do we do this one thing and not that thing? Why does this family do that and we do this? And lots of beautiful, rich opportunities to teach and explain. Or perhaps the simple and innocent on their part, pointing out of the different scars on your arms or your legs and ask, how did this get there? And you could say, well, I did something really stupid and you should avoid doing that lest you have a scar or worse. Children, I believe, are probably the main recipients for such lessons. They are the ones that are to heed the instructions of this psalm and of their parents and of the generations that have gone before so that they may learn to avoid the sort of sins and tragic mistakes of others for their own well-being and for the improvement of their family and the world around them. Well, that's what Psalm 78 does. It's a reminder of the generations past, the mistakes of the, of the previous generations, so that those who would hear this warning may heed it, and they would remember God and not forget them, not forget Him like their fathers did. Really, Psalm 78 is, is a reminder that God is still good, even when we are not. That's the biggest lesson we're to learn from Psalm 78, that God is still good, even when we are not. But there are, there are perils and dangers of forgetting God, of forgetting His past faithfulness. There's dangers of presuming upon His continual kindness and graciousness to us. If we forget God, not mentally assuming that He no longer exists, but forgets Him as we forget our wallet at home when we're not paying attention, when we fail to prioritize something important in our lives and we find ourselves all of a sudden without it, when we have so relegated God to a small portion of our mind and our heart's affection that He has all but been forgotten, then we will make the same mistakes Israel has made and quite possibly reap the same discipline and judgment Israel reaped. This is the lesson of Psalm 78, that though God is still good, even when we are not, we must heed the warning and avoid the perils of forgetting God's past faithfulness. And we must stray from presuming upon God's continual kindness. Really, verses 1 through 8 is an introduction here to the whole psalm. It teaches us what the whole purpose of the psalm is to be, a lesson that parents and specifically fathers are to teach to their children about what God has done so that they would walk faithfully before the Lord. This is, it says, a parable there in verse 2, that he is teaching dark sayings from of old. This is a mystery and a parable. Now, what is a parable? If you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, you may think that a parable, rightly, is a story that explains a simple truth. It's not meant to be overly picked apart and allegorized, but it is a story, a narrative, that demonstrates a broader truth that you intend to learn. So Psalm 78 is a parable. It's a story-like teaching, and we can see that in the text. The narrative of Israel's wandering of their failures, of their rebellion, and of God's faithfulness and compassion and patience. 
and the lessons we learn in those exchanges. This is a parable, a story to draw out this idea of God's goodness, even when we are sinful, and of the dangers of forgetting God's past faithfulness, and the dangers of that presumption upon His kindness over and over and over again. But this is also, it says in verse 2, a dark saying from of old, very ominous sounding. What does that mean? Well, simply that this is a, this is a mystery. This is something shrouded that, that we don't quite fully understand. Now, what is it that we don't understand? What is the mystery of Psalm 78? The mystery is this. Why do we reject God when He is always so good to us? That doesn't have an answer. Why do we keep returning back to our sin, as the Proverbs would say, like a dog returns to its vomit? We can't explain it. We know theologically we have sinned. We know that we love sin. But we can't explain why the good and precious God who graciously gives all things to us and has promised all good things is nowhere near the priority of our lives often as we return back to the things that we know He has kept us from. That's the mystery here of Psalm 78. And that's the warning. When you ponder on that mystery, when you think about this parable, you begin to wonder, why is it that in one breath we can repent of our sins and the very next curse God with a lie? Why is it that we can see the abundance of God's provision in our life and then covet so much that we don't have? Why is it that we can be saved from a near-death experience on the highway and then turn and yell at our kids? That's the mystery. Psalm 78 is a parable that reminds us that despite that mystery, God is continually good and faithful and warns us not to take His kindness presumptuously. To keep going in verses 1 through 8, we see this, this beautiful privilege and responsibility that both parents and children have. Notice what it says, that we have been told, commanded by God to teach our children. It says in verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, that's Deuteronomy 6, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them. That is the law, the commandments the good works of God. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. So why, parents, do we teach our children good things of the Lord? Why do we bring them to church? So that they may set their hope in God, that they would not forget the works of God, but they they would keep His commandments. Parents, notice the, the responsibility and the privilege you have in this equation that you are commanded not only in Deuteronomy 6, but again in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers specifically are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're to instruct our children according to God's word, just as Israelite fathers were to instruct their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We are to model the same sort of faithfulness, and repentance that's, that's labored for here in our own children's lives so they would see what that looks like. That there's flesh to put on the bones of theology and catechism and truths that they learn in little form that grows and matures as they do. We have a great responsibility, parents, to be mindful of the instruction and the work that we have ahead of us. This is not optional, but every parent, and I think the Bible makes a case that especially fathers, must take this role extremely seriously. We are not responsible for our children's salvation. God alone provides and secures that. But we see that there is a great privilege that the Lord uses in parents towards their salvation, towards their children's salvation. That is God's mercy to us that we may play a role in our own children's hearts being drawn to Christ. Parents, do you pray for your children? Do you labor in teaching? Do you have a heart like our Father, who despite their own frustrating remarks and comments and disobedience, pour out steadfast love and affection? 
God's mercy not only in our ability to be a part of that, their own salvation, but, but God's mercy in revealing a source of our own sanctification. That children alone allow us to, to be tried to the brink of losing our mind what it means to be patient and selfless and forgiving and constantly poured out for the sake of someone else who almost gives nothing in return. That's the great privilege and responsibility of being a father and a mother. Children, there's a great privilege and responsibility that you have as well. If you are a child of a believing parent or parents, this is God's great mercy to you. We have so many kids in this church, and we praise God because we trust that as they grow, they will come up knowing and hearing the gospel. Not just every week, but daily. As they come in and out of life, just the sheer grace of being born into a family whose parents or parent believes the gospel is an advantage to them, just like the oracles of God were an advantage to Israel. The warning, of course, is that you could take this for granted. How many children grow up in a home, dragged to church, taught Bible, knows theology, but the time they get out on their own wants nothing to do with the Lord? They have turned their back on the advantage and the mercy and the grace that was theirs. Just like Israel turns their back on God, despite the mercy and the advantage that God had given to them. So there is a great privilege, children, in your parents' home, in your access to the gospel, and the blessings that flow upon your family by virtue of their faith that you in some small measure begin to take part. And I want to be clear. This doesn't make you a Christian by being part of a Christian home. Your children are not Christians because you are. But we must be clear that there is a special advantage and mercy given and extended to our children that is not extended to the children of unbelieving parents. And God still saves those unbelieving parents. That's my own story, for those unbelieving children. But how much greater is the advantage for children who are born hearing the gospel? They also have the responsibility then to obey their parents. That's not popular to say, but children, you should obey your parents. You should heed their warnings and lesson. Despite what you may think, you very don't know very much, and your parents know a little bit more than you do, though admittedly not very much ourselves. You must heed the warnings and the lessons of your parents, especially as they lead you in what the gospel teaches. That is why God has given you to them and given them to you. This is... Psalm 78 then is something like a living memory that we must rehearse and teach just like this psalm does so that we would be faithful. And by the way, if you do not have children or your children have now grown up and now are out of the house, your responsibility to the children of those here still abide. That we can still help teach and instruct and care for families who are right in the thick of the belly of the beast of training up their children. We're still grateful for child care volunteers who are even now teaching and helping instruct our own children. So by way of introduction, this, this idea here is that the, the fathers of Israel would teach and sing Psalm 78 in their homes and outside as they're going to the market or as they're going up to the temple. They would remember constantly what God has done. This is a means of instructing one another. Psalm 78 also has a secondary purpose, which really also unfolds the purposes of God. It looked like in the very beginning of Israel's history that, that Ephraim, who's a grandson of Jacob, the son of Joseph, had a very prominent role in the, the outworking of God's purposes. They were mighty warriors. They had a sizable land. God's own Ark of the Covenant, his, his tabernacle was placed in Shiloh, which was part of the land that was given to Ephraim in the Old Testament. And yet by the end of this psalm, we see that God rejects the tent of Joseph. He destroys the tabernacle there in Shiloh, and he gives the Ark of the Covenant, to David, which is then in Jerusalem, in the southern tribe of Judah. And so the question that little Israelite children may ask is, why do we go up to Jerusalem to worship, and why not to the other place in Israel? Why not to Shiloh? And the answer is Psalm 78, because they have turned their backs on the Lord, and the Lord raised up David, and has chosen the tribe of Judah. The question is, what is God up to? Why has God done what he has done is also part of the words that we rehearse to our children and to one another when we gather. Verses 1 through 8 lay out, really, the narrative of the rest of the psalm. 
And because the psalm is, is long, we're not going to go verse by verse through it. I want to give you just really a, a quick overview or the structure and the narrative flow of verses 9 through the rest. You will be helped if you have your Bible open in front of you and you turn there. I just want to do a flyover of the, of the psalm. The first thing you should know is aside from verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 39 and verses 4 through 72, those two other parts of the psalm really parallel one another. So the whole structure of the psalm is what we would call chiastic. It kind of builds and then, and then reverses itself. And each section is sort of lined up or corresponds to another. That's what we call a chiastic structure. They parallel one another. And so you got one through eight, which is really the summary or the introduction of the whole psalm. And then two parts of the psalm, sort of broken nearly down the middle, that really parallels to one another. Each part corresponds to another. And what the whole psalm here then does, it traces Israel's history from the Exodus, there in the, the Pentateuch, to the wilderness, then all the way into the Judges period of the Old Testament, ultimately into their settlement into the Promised Land, or to Canaan, and eventually, it's, it fast-forwards quite a bit, leading to David and to God's choosing of Judah as the new seat of his dwelling place. So just a brief overview of the sections then. Verses 9 through 16 describes the, the Ephraimites, which was a rather prideful and hot-tempered tribe. It describes their neglect of God's promises and goodness, which is seen in the events of the Exodus and the Red Sea, this care for them on their journey out of Egypt. Then in the next section, verses 17 to 29, Israel has a hardness of heart and it pushes back against God. It says it provokes God. It pushes back against the goodness of God by testing God in the wilderness. They crave what they should not. They did not believe. Though we see then that God was gracious and continued to provide for them. Then in the next section, verses 30 through 55, God disciplines them. And yet though He disciplines them, they still fail to learn from their sinful mistakes. And yet God was still good to them. And then Asaph recounts again, only in more detail, all the plagues of Egypt and God's deliverance of his people out of their enemies' hands and his bringing them to the land that he swore to their fathers. Then in 56 through 64, in the next section, even after all of this, this continued faithfulness to God, his provision and his deliverance and his bringing them to the promised land, even after all of this, we learn that Israel still became idolatrous. So God allowed the tabernacle to be destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory dwelled, to be taken from Shiloh, which was, again, the land of the Ephraimites, to be taken by the Philistines. And then in verses 65 through 72, the rest of the psalm, God once again defeats the enemies of Israel. He restores the ark. He's brought back to Israel. He disciplines them. He removes their once prominent role in the kingdom, and He places it in Judah. There's a shift then that happens, and he raises up David to continue God's purposes. He says, the, the, the rest of my kingdom and purposes as a result to salvation will flow through David, his kingdom, and the tribe of Judah. So that's a quick flyover of the overview of Psalm 78. And I want to encourage you to spend some time studying the exact history of that in Exodus and in Numbers and in 1 Samuel. It's a great refresher of Old Testament history. What I want to do for the rest of our time then is just consider the specific sins of Israel and then in light of this consider God's graces and God's acts despite their sin and then a few exhortations to end. What were Israel's sins? First, notice in verse 11, God disciplines because of Israel's forgetfulness. It says in verse 10 and 11, They did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. This forgetfulness is, is the mindlessness of God. It is the putting out of our mind where God should take priority. As I said before, it's as if not paying attention, we leave the house and have forgotten something valuable and necessary. And we find ourselves in need of it, but we have forgotten it. 
we have put God out of our mind. We have forgotten specifically, it says, the words of God. Refusing to walk according to their law or to keep God's covenant. Those commandments and stipulations and promises that God gave to them through the prophets and through Moses, they were to have in their hearts, and yet they turned themselves away from it. They, they forgot. This, by the way, in the Hebrew is an active forgetting. This, this isn't a passive forgetting, but this was a, a setting aside, a putting out of the mind. They, they actively forgot the covenant and His works. There's a forgetfulness of God's words. Friends, if you do not study and take time to put in front of your eyes God's words, you will forget it. Familiarity breeds remembrance. In times of great distress and trouble, if you do not have the word of God hidden inside your heart, memorize where is your sword in the day of battle. They have also, it says, verse 11, forgotten the works of God. They forgot His works in the wonders that He has shown them. Again, this, this is clear to them, that they are where they are. They have what they have because of God's kindness and goodness. And just a few generations before, they were, they were a little small tribe, maybe 70 strong in the wilderness. They almost perished because of a famine. But God's providence, they brought them to Egypt where they could thrive and grow. And then they were put into captivity for nearly 400 years, slaving away there as slaves in Egypt before God raised up Moses and led them out of the wilderness. God brings them to their promised land as He has sustained them over the course of 40 years. And yet still they complain. They have forgotten all that God has done for them. Friends, forgetfulness is so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to forget that God has been good to us. It's so easy to forget, even moment by moment, the wondrous works of the Lord. But we must remember instead that every word of God in Scripture is relevant to every moment of our life. And every work of God continues to spur and encourage our faith to be sustained as we face whatever we face. Israel, they forgot God. And so God would discipline them. The second sin we see that Israel commits is that of rebellion against God or a turning from God. Look in verse 17. Yet still they sinned more against Him even after He provided a means by which they left captivity in, his, in, in Egypt. They sinned more against Him rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Or in, chapter, or in verse 56. In 57, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away treacherously like their fathers. They acted like a twisted, deceitful bow. There is a rebellion against the goodness and the kindness of God. They rebelled against the Lord, it says, in the desert. How do they do this? Notice it says they tested Him. Verse 18, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They, they grumbled and they said, did God bring us out here to kill us? Is He really that good of a God that He would lead us into the desert that we would starve? And then they said, well, we ate better in Egypt. We were treated better as slaves and as God's chosen people in the wilderness. And the arrogance. And so they tested God. The language here in verses 19 and 20 is not one of genuine questioning. This isn't genuine wonder if God will do what He has promised. But this is a mocking. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? The Hebrew here is the exact same language in Psalm 23. You may be familiar with that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there it says that the Lord spreads a table before the enemies. It is the exact opposite sentiment of verse 19 here. The faith of Psalm 23 is one who trusts God, who will indeed provide all that they need. But here in 78 verse 19, it is a mock. It's a mockery of God's kindness. He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? It's nice that God did one thing, but it's hardly believable that He'll continue to do it again. 
that this is rebellion against God. Notice then what it's teaching us is that rebellion, testing is actually a reform, a form of rebellion. That when we put God to the test, it is the same as if we rebel against God in our hearts. What does it mean to test God? Well, does it mean to ask and plead and wonder genuinely if God will be the kind of God we see Him to be in Scripture? God knows sometimes the weakness and the feebleness of our faith. We look out in the world and we see sometimes it's very difficult to believe that God is really going to work this situation out for good. And when we come to God and say, Lord, are you going to be able to do this? Can you make something out of this? The psalmist described a good picture of what those kind of questions could look like. But the testing of God is not the simple, genuine questioning and asking, but a refusal to really believe that God is good and will work for His people. It is almost a proving and a confirming in your own mind what you have already determined God to be. That is, withholding. Not good. Unloving. And so testing God is not really an answering a prayer, but a mocking of God's goodness and character. We also see, again, in verse 56 to 57, that idolatry itself is a form of rebellion. It says in verse 58, they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. That is, after they were brought into the land that God had had given to them in the promised land in Canaan, they began almost immediately to erect idols because they failed, the Ephraimites specifically failed to push out all of the people and the inhabitants of Canaan, and they allowed them to dwell. And what happens when sin, like a little leaven, infects the rest of the lump? It spreads. And so Israel very quickly began to take on the idolatry and the pagan worship of its neighbors. And so they erected these high places and they started worshiping idols. And this provoked God's jealousy and his anger. This is a rebellion against God. This is a rejection of God and all that he has done for them and who he is in favor for these little wooden carved images. So Israel not only forgot God by putting, them, putting Him out of their minds, refusing to remember His word and His works, but they rebelled against God by turning away from Him and His goodness and testing Him as if He were to be mocked. In verses 35 through 37, then we also see that well, part of their sin is that of false repentance. They feigned repentance so that they could get the blessings of God back. It says that After God disciplined them, verse 35, then they remembered that God was their rock, that Most High was their their Redeemer. 36 tells us what really went on. But they flattered Him with their mouths. They lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. This is a false repentance. This is a feigned godliness. And God sees right through it. What does false repentance look like? It looks like this, one who offers lip service only to God, but has no love for Him in his heart. It looks like unsustained unsustained faithfulness. That is, you may have started out strong, praising God, lifting your hands in service, singing along, memorizing some of the Bible, things have gone well, Yet your sin is never truly repented of, but it's secretly enjoyed. It is casually brought into the home. It is unmortified and unaddressed. You can come here on Sunday mornings and pray along with us this prayer of confession. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can sing the songs and repent during the service. And yet your secret sins and your unaddressed sinfulness only demonstrates and confirms that your repentance is not genuine. Unsustained faithfulness will demonstrate that your repentance is fake. It is flattering God with your mouth, but lying with your tongue. It demonstrates that your heart is not steadfast toward Him, not being faithful to the covenant. Well, then what does genuine repentance look like? What looks like acknowledging sin truly, 
a real confession of sin, not just a recounting of the things you have done, but a confession of sin before the Lord, that you are sinful and in need of grace. It also means having real, genuine sorrow and brokenness over sin and not its consequences. That you can't simply be upset because God took this away as an act of discipline, and because you want it back, you'll repent. Real repentance means genuinely having sorrow or contrition over the sin itself as an offense against God, not as a sorrow over consequences. That's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, as Paul describes it. Godly and genuine repentance also means making amends. It means, to the best of your ability, restoring what was broken by that sin. Now, we can't earn ourselves back into a relationship with the Lord once we have broken that, which we all have in, in Adam. We cannot earn ourselves back into the good graces of God. Only Christ can do that for us. But insofar as it relates to our world, we must make amends in the ways that we've sinned against each other and others. It means paying back what was stolen, working off a debt. It means saying, I'm sorry, restoring and repairing a relationship. It means genuinely doing what is right and good for the other person. Ultimately, it means sustained faithfulness. It means, ultimately, that by God's help, you have actually turned to 180 and have sustained in your faithfulness against that sin. Genuine repentance was not practiced here by the Israelites. God saw in their heart and disciplined them. The last sin specifically here in Psalm 78 was the sin of unbelief. Look in verse 22 and 32. In verse 22, it says that God's anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God. They did not trust His saving power. Verse 32, in spite of all this, the care and the discipline of the Lord, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. What it comes together, really sin, is this. It is unbelief. Unbelief in God's promises, Unbelief in his wonders and his work. It's a failure to trust that God is who he said he would be. The failure to believe that God is able to provide what he has promised he would give to you. Unbelief threatens faith by teaching us and tempting us to believe that God is not God. That the strong, omnipotent, mighty God is not actually able to provide what you need. That he who owns the cattle on a thousand hills does not have time or resources to provide for you. This isn't doubt, which believers may genuinely struggle with, but unbelief, which teaches us that God is not God. This is what the Israelites believed. Instead of believing in God, they believed in themselves, in their own might, their own strength, and their own ability to provide for themselves. Yet they were chosen to be a people that, that believed and, be, and depended upon God alone. So for all of these sins, forgetfulness, rebellion, and idolatry, this false repentance and ultimately unbelief, continue to invite the discipline of the Lord. And yet at the same time we see graciously that God provided for them, cared for them over and over in verse 38, he says, Yet he, being compassion, compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. And he did not destroy them. That is, utterly destroyed them. He restrained his anger often, and he did not stir up all of his wrath. No one could stand then in the day of judgment. So the Lord withholds judgment, withholds wrath, and is patient and long-suffering and forbearing with his people, because he is compassionate. Four graces of God, just through Psalm 78. Firstly, His provision, that is namely of safety. In verses 12 through 16, is a recounting of how God, God safely brought Israel out of Egypt. He, he killed the firstborn. He sent the plagues upon Egypt. He allowed the Red Sea to be parted and walk past it, and He crushed those who were pursuing them. Of nourishment, verses 20 through 31. He provided for them, fed them in the wilderness, despite their grumbling and their complaining and their mocking and their testing. He gave them what they craved and what they desired. 
even if he disciplines them for it. God continually provides for his people because that is the kind of God he is. That despite their unbelief, he pours out and uses every ounce of his nature for the sake of his children. If God has the strength, he is strong for his children. If God has the provision, he provides for his children. If God has the love, he gives it to his children. All that God is is for the sake of his children. He has tied himself to the care and the safety of his people as he fulfills his promises for his glory. So he's provided. Another of God's graces in Psalm 78 is his guidance, his constant and clear guidance. Again, in verse 14, it says that he guided them, he led them out of Egypt and in through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire by night, that they would not be lost. He led them through the wilderness. He kept them safe and secure. He guides them to their promised land. Another grace of God in Psalm 78 is His mercy, constantly employed for His people. Verses 38 through 39, His compassion is poured out. He atones for the iniquity. He restrains His anger. It says in verse 39 that He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. He understands human frailty. And so in His compassion, He gives mercy upon mercy upon mercy to His people. Despite their sins, despite their rejection, despite even their idolatry, he constantly is merciful. Really, the bigger picture of God's grace in Psalm 78 is that of his deliverance. Especially there in verses 42 through 55, this, this picture of God doing mighty, powerful things for the sake of the deliverance of God's people. And he brings them to the promised land. He's actually delivering on the promises that he made to Abraham and to his children and he delivers them faithfully. God's grace is all over Psalm 78, and so this is what Israel must learn from. The children that are receiving this lesson from this psalm is to understand that God is continually good. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God is always faithful. Why is this? Well, God's faithfulness is demonstrated in his acts. There are three primary acts of God here in the text. First, verse 39, that God remembers human frailty. This is what we should be encouraged, friends, that God remembers human frailty. He says that he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. He understands that we are in desperate need and despite our best efforts, we will never provide for ourselves what he has purposed to give us. Notice the phrase, God remembered. This is a phrase that speaks to God's faithfulness. Not, not that he has actually forgotten, but that he remembers, he steps in his faithfulness to his promises and to his people. is always abounding and for us. Just see that in some of the ways that it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the dark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. This was after so many days of, of rain and so many days of waiting. It says that God remembered Noah. Now, did God really forget Noah? No, they were literally the only people on earth. His remembering Noah is his faithfulness to his promise to sustain them and to keep them secure. Genesis 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Abraham pleaded with God that he would spare Lot. And God remembers. Not as if God had forgotten about Lot or Abraham's promise, but that God was faithful to what he said he would do. And so he remembered. Genesis 30, chapter 22. God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. Exodus 2, 24. God heard their groaning, that is the groaning of Israel under the captivity of Egypt. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The covenant was never so far removed from God's mind. In fact, it was the very thing in the purposes of God's plan that Egypt was even risen as a great nation, that Israel was even under such captivity. No, this was always at the forefront of God's plans and purposes. And here we said that God remembered. 
It means that God is acting faithfully. God, in verse 39, remembers human frailty. He remembers that we are but flesh. But he will also remember those who are in rebellion against him. In Revelation 16, 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So God's purposes and promises are not only for the good and the happiness of his people, but for the full and final deliverance of his people from their enemies. And Babylon the great will drink the full and final cup of the fury of his wrath. So when it says that God remembered, it is him acting in faithfulness according to his character. This is the purpose of God's revelation in Psalm 78. We also see there in verse 39, one of God's acts is that he himself atones. In the Old Testament, who atones? The priest. They offer sacrifices of atonement on behalf of the people. But here it says that God atones for their sins or their iniquity. He does it. Of course, we know He Himself graciously brings to us the gift of life in Christ. It is God Himself who has taken on flesh, who has laid down His life, who suffers, dies, and was risen again. And in His death, we find the atoning sacrifice sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. God Himself takes upon the necessary work of atoning for sin. You and I cannot do it. No animal could sacrifice for the sake of our sins. We could not even give our own self as an atonement for sin. God Himself takes on the responsibility and the iniquity for atonement. He does this in Christ. God's act is not only in His remembering of our human frailty and not only in His act of Himself atoning for us, but also in His freely choosing those whom He delights. It says there at the end of this psalm, verse 67, He rejects the tent of Joseph. He does not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but He chose, he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion whom He loves. He has chosen, verse 70, David His servant and took him from the sheepfolds. This is God's free choosing, His election of His own people, not according to anything that anyone else has done. He did not choose Judah or David because they were sinless, or because they possessed the qualities or the righteousness that Joseph or Israel lacked. No, simply because He freely chose. Yes, He disciplines the tent of, Ju of, of Joseph and of Ephraim, but it is not because Judah or David merited any favor with God on their own. God remembers human frailty. God Himself makes atonement for this people. And God freely chooses according to His own will. Those are God's mighty acts that we are to remember and to teach to our children. That God is kind and compassionate. As you teach your children, as you remind yourselves, and as you think about this as we remember with one another, God remembers human frailty. He is faithfully acting for our good. That God Himself has provided atonement for our sins in His own Son, Christ. And that He has freely chosen us, not because of a condition of our goodness or our merits, of our intellect or our good looks, but simply because He freely chooses according to the counsel of His own will. These are God's mighty acts that we teach and remind each other. Okay, five minutes of exhortation. If I can trespass on your time a little more. I think these are important. I want to give you three scriptural exhortations and four practical ones. Romans 2.4, we read this morning, Do not presume on the riches of God's, God's kindness and, forbear, or, and forbearance and patience. For God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What does Psalm 78 teach us? Except that God is kind and in response to His kindness you should repent. That's the lesson to learn. That's the warning we heed. Israel, Ephraim, even David would not heed these warnings. We must heed them with God's help. Friends, how long will you continue to ignore God's mercies in your life? How much time will you continue to show contempt on God for all the good things He's done and yet turn your back on what He's called you to do? Second scriptural exhortation comes from Psalm 95 speaks of this same situation, the wandering of the wilderness, the hardening of Israel's hearts. They're falling in the wilderness through discipline. It says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
as in the day of the wilderness. God did not allow a generation to come into the promised land for the hardest of their heart. Psalm 95 reminds his readers that if you can hear God's voice calling you to repent, you should do so now. While repentance may still be found, while God may still be sought, how long will you continue to ignore God's mercies? If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, this morning let it be known that you are hearing the voice of the Lord. If you do not repent and believe and respond in faith, it is a further hardening of your heart and the encouraging of God's wrath against you. In fact, the third scriptural encouragement is this. It takes Psalm 95 and it says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. It says in verse 3, verse 12, Take care then, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the remedy for this? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that if you hear his voice and you want to and desire to not harden your heart like those in the wilderness have done, like Psalm 78 reminds us others have done, we must come together, spur on one another to love and good works. Okay, four practical exhortations. They all start with R so you can write them and remember them down. First, repent. Repent. Know that you and I have failed tremendously like Israel, like the Ephraimites, like even David, in the generations that come before us, we have sinned, we have spurned God's goodness. We are all guilty of the sins we see in Psalm 78. Begin with repentance. Ask God to forgive you of sins. Turn to Christ who has poured himself out and has made atonement for those sins. Friends, your repentance is absolutely vital. If you do not do this, nothing else matters. Repent. Secondly, read. You have to read. If you want to heed the warnings of Scripture, if you want to avoid the pitfalls of sins, you've got to read God's Word to help you. Israel's history is Christian history. This isn't some weird far-off nation thousands of years ago that has no relevance to our life. Israel's history is the history of the Christian. And so you must look back through the past generations of your own faith to see how God has worked kindly and how God has taught others to trust in Him so that you too may be encouraged and you may learn and you may be warned and you may be strengthened. Take up and read your Bible. Read it aloud. Read it daily. Read it often. Read it discerningly. And ask the Lord for help. Read it with lenses and eyes that are able to see not just the sins of others, but your own. So repent, read. Third, remind. You are to remind. Remind your children of the works of God. Remind your children of the mercies and the compassion of God, of the atonement of their sins found in Christ. Remind your children of God's continued faithfulness despite our own sinfulness. Remind your children that God has chosen His people to glorify Him in this world. Remind your children that the Lord will return. Remind your children that God will make all things new again. Remind your children this. Remind each other that when we gather, we are here because of God's provision and kindness. Encourage one another that as God provides, look what the Lord has done in your life. Look what He has done in our lives. Look what He is doing in this world. Encourage one another by reminding each other of God's faithfulness Remind the world why God is unique and worthy to be praised. Do not become like the world, but be set apart from the world, though in it, not of it, so that you may be a reminder to the world that there is something coming after death that they must be prepared for. Remind the world. So we are to repent, read, remind, and fourth, lastly, remember. Not only are we to remind others, our children, each other, the world, but we also ourselves must remember. Friends, take stock of the blessings of your life. Do your own Psalm 78 searching and say, what has God brought me out of? What has He done for me? How has He provided? Write it down, look at it, read it, and then give thanks for it. Remember. Your act of remembering will spur faithfulness to the covenant, and you will then begin to fulfill exactly what the first eight verses teach us to do to remember God, to not forget the works of God, but to keep His commandments, to not become like the fathers, stubborn, rebellious, 
whose heart was not steadfast, but in remembering, we set our hope in God. Ultimately, we look to Christ. We remember that the ultimate work of God, for which we must give thanks, is the sacrifice of His Son. And so that in His work, we no longer have to work and strive for perfection or moral obedience, but we have in Him the very atonement for sin, which unites us to the Father. If you repent, you read, you do the work of reminding and remembering, friends, you will be fulfilling the work and the call of Psalm 78 to be faithful to God because He has first been faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, there's, even after an hour, so much more that can be said about this psalm, about our own need of grace. And Lord, I trust that you'll continue to work and to teach us as we gather in community groups and as we have discussions throughout the week and as you just work on our own hearts as we read and pray. We, we will find ways, we will find opportunities to repent of the many difficult and sinful means by which we have rebelled against you. Uh, but encourage us, strengthen us by your Spirit, that we may continue to be faithful, that we would be remembered, remembering and forgiven. Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. It's time to sing your song again.